Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Scripture in Black and White. Uh, we're so thrilled that you have been following us and listening to each episode in this season. Uh, this season, we've been dealing with uh, the family, marriage, uh, and parenting, uh, and so many issues that relate to that. Uh, and today we have another special guest, and I'm going to give way uh, to our co-host and friend, Bobby Harrington, to introduce our special guest. Bobby, good to see you again. Great to see you, Anthony. I'm very excited about this interview uh, because uh, we get to interview Nancy Piercy. And for many years, I have been a long-distance fan of her work. For everybody who's joining with us, let me tell you a little bit about Professor Piercy. So Nancy Piercy, or we would say if we were with her in an academic setting, Professor Piercy is the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes, as well as a book that a lot of people have said good things about, Love Thy Body, The Soul of Science, one of my favorite titles, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth and Total Truth. She is a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. She's been quoted in The New Yorker and Newsweek, highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by Christianity Today, and hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. That's a, that's a pretty impressive uh, introduction, uh, but I would just say this to all of uh, our fans and followers of Scripture in Black and White. She loves Jesus, and she's trying her best to follow Jesus and help everybody to make sure that we have intellectual integrity as we follow and honor Jesus. So, Nancy, welcome. I'm going to start us off by just jumping right in. Uh, your book on toxic masculinity is, in my opinion— a super important book that's come out. I've read the book myself. I'm so glad for the message. And uh, let me just say this before I ask you my question. Uh, in this podcast, Anthony and I spent some time looking at the text of the New Testament, uh, which clearly teaches that the husband is to be a Christ-like head in his family. Uh, the word head uh, communicates... Um, not just servant leadership, but there's a certain, you know, authority and responsibility that comes with it to be like Jesus, really, with our wives and to lead like Jesus with our families. And a lot of people have a problem with that. So let's start with the good news. People often accuse evangelical Christian men of being oppressive patriarchs, prone to abuse, misogyny. But you make the surprising claim that they test out as having the lowest levels of abuse and divorce, and these are my words, uh, actually being some of the best possible husbands and fathers. Please explain. Yeah, well, your, your words are exactly right. Um, so this was actually the reason I finally decided to write this book. Right, This was kind of the final trigger, is I started reading sociological studies of Christian men, and I was just taken aback. It was so different from everything we'd ever heard in the secular media, you know, the, the, the mainstream narrative, uh, which is, of course, like you said, the idea that evangelical men are exhibit A of toxic masculinity. And I'll give you just one quote. It was easy to find them uh, with a Google search, but here's one. The, this was a co-founder of the Church Too movement, which came after the Me Too movement. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating Christianity today. And so what happened is the social scientists, the psychologists, sociologists, were looking at these accusations and saying, where's your evidence? You know, you're making these charges, where's your data? And so they went and did the studies, and I quote some dozen or so studies that all found that evangelical Christian men actually do test out at the top as the best, most loving, most engaged husbands and fathers. Their wives report the highest level of happiness with their husband's love and affection. And by the way, I sometimes get pushed back on that. So I, yes, the wives were interviewed separately, which can be important. <laughs> uh, 
evangelical husbands test out as the uh, most engaged fathers, 3.5 hours more with their children than secular men, both in shared activities like sports and church youth group and in church of discipline, like um, setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples divorce at the lowest rate of any other group in America, 35% less than secular men. And, and the real surprise, they actually have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America. So I, I was so surprised by this. Uh, let me give you a quote. Sometimes a, a quote can really summarize it for you. Um, so give, I'm going to give this, this quote from um, the New York Times. This is my, uh, I call him my go-to sociologist because he did the largest study. And his name is Brad Wilcox. He's at the University of Virginia. And to give you a sense of his stature in the field, he does get published in places like the New York Times. And so this is, this is what he said there. It turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Of course, these studies often focus on the wives, because the assumption is that these, uh, these abusive husbands, you know, uh, are domineering and controlling their wives. But no, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious, are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. And then he turns to his um, colleagues, you know, most... I don't know if you know, but uh, sociology is a very secular discipline. So these are mostly secular people. He turns to them and says, academics need to cast aside their prejudices about religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. So the bottom line is, you know, the churches don't know this, and certainly the public doesn't know this, but this is not a, a pep talk from a religious leader. This is solid empirical research. This is evidence-based findings that Christianity does have the power to reconcile the sexes, as I put it in the subtitle of my book. Wow. Uh, thank you for that. Um, that that's, that's interesting. Uh, Eye-opening for me. Uh, you know, I want to go back to one of the things you were talking about uh, because oftentimes we hear, especially in the world today, which is kind of hostile towards marriage and the old concept of marriage. And so one of the issues that people will say is, oh, well, Christians, they divorce just like the rest of society. So what's the use in being? How do you respond to that? It is the first pushback. First pushback I always get. Right? And in fact, in my research, I discovered that it is one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. So the researchers went back to the data and they made a very crucial distinction between men who are really committed Christians that attend church regularly and you know really living it out from nominal Christians. And so nominal would be men who claim an evangelical identity Nominal, my, my students don't even know what the word means, so I have to tell them. N-O-M is Latin for name, so it means in name only. Right. And these are men who, on a survey like this, might check the Baptist box, for example, but who attend church rarely, if at all. It's more of a cultural background, family background. And these men test out shockingly different. And this is a lot of the reason for the negative um, stereotype. They actually, uh, their wives test out as the least happy in their marriage. They spend the least amount of time with their children. They have the highest rate of divorce, 20% higher than secular men. And the real shocker, they have the highest rate of domestic violence of any major group in America. So any study of evangelicals, you know, as a, as a whole, is going to give you misleading numbers because you've got men who are better than secular men and then you have men who are worse than secular men. And that's why the numbers have been so skewed. That's why most of us don't know this. And, and I think I would like this to get into the churches first because, uh, you know, even, even Christian men feel beaten down by charges of toxic masculinity. When I told my uh, class at Houston Christian University that I was writing a book on masculinity, 
one of my male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. Okay. Mm. <laughs> Even in Christian circles, they, they need this message. Um, and then, of course, in, in secular, in, uh, in the um, secular realm, in, the, in public, it's, it's a great apologetic in terms of helping people to see that the secular narrative is completely wrong. And, and they're getting it wrong, though, because of this misunderstanding of these two very different groups. That's great. Uh, Nancy, can you just uh, clarify for our audience, because this really stood out strongly to me, you're saying that when it comes to committed evangelical uh, husbands, how they're so different than those who say they're evangelical, but they're just nominal, or we would call them cultural Christians. They just attend church the odd time. That second group, that nominal cultural Christian group, is pretty, pretty bad, according to your study. Like atheistic men are better. <laughs> That's exactly right. I sometimes get people asking me, why would they be even worse than secular men? And apparently it's because, you know, the, they feel religious justification for it. You know, they take words like headship and submission, and, but they don't give it biblical meaning. They in, import meaning from the secular script for masculinity of entitlement, dominant control, and so on. But because they have religious language, they feel religious justification. So the average secular guy who may be hitting his wife and kids doesn't feel any religious justification for it. But the nominal Christian man does. And so as he's he's getting the both the he's getting the worst of both worlds, so that he ends up actually testing out as worse than the atheist or the secular man. The man with no religious affiliation, as the sociologist put it. Mm. And, and it does say, Boy. by the way, it does suggest, too, uh, the challenge to the church. On the one hand, can the church do a better job of supporting the men who are doing well, right? I have a, a graduate student who's the head of a Christian of a women's ministry in a large Baptist church here in Houston. And she said, on Mother's Day, we hand out roses and tell the mothers they're wonderful. On Father's Day, we scold the men and tell them to do better. And so I think it's time to stop scolding the men <laughs> um, and bring this data into the church to help you know, support and encourage Christian men who are doing a good job. It also suggests, however, that the, the church has a responsibility to reach out to these nominal men. And can we figure out a better way to disciple them? Because they are out there publicly, publicly presenting you know, as evangelicals. Um, and, and ruining the reputation of evangelicals, I might say. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. so how does the church, how does the church uh, bring them in and disciple them? You know, wouldn't it, we now know what our, our what our job is in the church in relation to these two groups of men? Yeah. So you know, when we look at you know all these issues that you're bringing up that are facing men uh, in general, and even how you've broken it down. Uh, as far as those who are committed Christians, those who are nominal and those who are secular, you know, across the board, uh, you know, they're going to be men of all backgrounds that are going to read your book. Uh, you know, men are typically falling behind in areas of education, of health, of life expectancy. Why do you would you say that we're not really paying attention to the real issues that men are facing? Yes, Um I, I was pretty struck by how much men and boys are falling behind. Boys are falling behind from the age of kindergarten. You know, they don't have the same fine motor control to operate as scissors. <laughs> and mm. so already in kindergarten, they're feeling like, you know, I'm worse than, than the girls. Um, one th psychotherapist who wrote a book on the subject said, in the schools, boys are treated as defective girls. Um, and, and so boys are falling behind all the way through school. Boys are falling behind in um, university. The average university now is 60% female, 40% male. And in some smaller colleges, it's worse. When I started teaching here at Houston Christian University, we were 70, 30, 70% female. And we've been mm -hmm. working to fix that. They fixed it by starting a football team and starting an uh, engineering department to attract more male students. Wow. Um, 
graduate school too. Um, more women than men are going to graduate school and professional schools like law and medicine. And then after school, uh, you were exactly right. Men are falling behind both relative to women and relative to where men used to be in terms of um, uh, homelessness, mental illness, drug and alcohol addiction, prison, uh, 90%, 95% of people in prison are, are male. And, and recently, there has been some studies done on male unemployment. It's not showing up in the normal unemployment statistics because they stopped looking for work, and so they had to dig deeper. And the researchers are telling us now that male unemployment is at Great Depression era levels. That was shocking. Wow. I mean, we mm. think of the Great Depression, right, as this time of incredible poverty. Male unemployment is at Great Depression era levels, and and you just mentioned life expectancy. So in recent mm -hmm. years, male life expectancy has gone down, and the significant thing is women's is not. So it's not a general trend, it's just men. And uh, one, one science magazine called The New Scientist put it this way, the major fact, demographic factor now in early death is being male. So I do think it's time for us to say, you know, isn't it time to have compassion on men and start asking what, what are they facing? And uh, the first book on the subject really was, it's called The War Against Boys by a philosopher named Christina Hoff Summers. And she said, every time we tried to have some program that would help boys, the feminist organizations would shoot it down. And they would say, well, men end up, you know, at the top of the ladder anyway, eventually. But what they ignored is that on average, males, uh, male life expectancy and, and, and success and, and education is all going down. On average, it's actually gone down, and, and that's what we need to pay attention to. And the I have a little a little glimmer of hope um, because people are finally starting to acknowledge it. There was a recent book out by a uh, a researcher from the Brookings Institution called "Of Men and Boys," not a Christian book, but the first time somebody from a sort of centrist, maybe a little bit left of center, think tank was writing. A book that was sympathetic to men and boys, and uh, not not from a Christian perspective. And the Washington Post recently had an article. Uh, it was written by a black woman, which was an interesting perspective. Uh, Christine Emba, if you want to look it up, E M B A. Christine Emba, and it was called "Men Are Lost." They got more mail, <laughs> reader mail, from that article than anything they'd had in years. They had to cut off the comments finally because it was, you know, after it was 10,000 something, you know. Oh. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty cool. Those are both very recent, but it might show a glimmer of people starting to recognize it's time to start saying, how can we help men and boys? So, Nancy, let me jump in there on that because one of the things that we find at Renew Network and really in a lot of evangelical churches. And this is often propagated by well-known scholars, is that the churches are uh, patriarchal, which is bad, and uh, because they're patriarchal, they're misogynistic, and there's so much pressure right now for churches to cave. And what we find is that just the air we breathe has this message of, we've all got to focus on the empowerment of women. I don't know if you saw the movie uh, Barbie. I actually saw the movie Barbie last week. Did you? Uh, and it was interesting to me, uh, but sad because, you know, in Barbie land, all the women, you know, they're dominant and they rule. And then they leave Barbie land and go to the real world. And uh, the, the, the word or the, the impression is in the real world, patriarchy dominates and that's terrible for women. And uh, so Ken comes back and he's trying to change Barbie land, but they revolt and, and uh, he's not able to change it. And like, if, if I was a young man watching that movie, it'd be like, I'd be so confused about myself. And then uh, other examples, uh, just recently, uh, we, we like, uh, my wife and I like to watch spy type movies and things like that. And so you have this new series out uh, called Lioness. Uh, which is like, you know, dominant women 
uh, in the U.S. military, special ops and all that. And it's kind of like everybody's beating the drum, more women power, more women power, less men, less men. And so many young men are just lost. And I just want to ask you for practical advice in that cultural climate of uh, how church leaders can disciple not just the young men, but the young women uh, into this, what is actually human flourishing that you've discovered? Yeah, well, when a, writing a book like this, of course, one of the first questions people ask is, well, what do you think are the differences between men and women? And so I have to put that right at the beginning of the book. And let's start with just basic biology. Men are bigger, stronger, faster, 90% greater upper body uh, muscle strength. Um, and because of testosterone, they are more aggressive and more risk-taking. And this is just their starting material. This is clearly God's design. Right? You know, we're not talking about sin that happens after the fall. This is how God designed men. And so we have to start by just affirming that these are good things and that our culture should be thankful for what men mm. bring. There was a uh, study... Uh, done on men around the world. This first ever study done, cross-cultural study on concepts of masculinity and done by an anthropologist. He's not a Christian. But what he found is, you know, cultures are a little different in how they define masculinity, but he found a common thread that in all cultures around the world, they agree that the good man will perform what he calls the three Ps, provide protect, and procreate, you know, become a father, build into the next generation, have a family. And these were not countries with a Christian background. This, is, this seems to be universal. That, well, as we would say, men are made in God's image, right? And they do know that their unique masculine strength was not given them to get what they want and to dominate over others. But it was given them to protect, provide for, care for, and if necessary, fight for those that they love. And I thought that was very encouraging because it, it implies that this is an innate, inherent knowledge that men have. We might call it general revelation, right? General revelation is what we know just from creation, and special mm -hmm. revelation is what we know from the Bible. So mm -hmm. This is general revelation that men do seem to know either at a basic level what it means to be a good man and how to use their strengths to take care of and provide for those they love. And I think that, um, by the way, this is why you also be Romans, Romans 2, right? We all have a conscience. <laughs> um, I think that this is something that will give us a much better way to approach these issues because men don't respond well to being called toxic, right? I mean, who would? So instead, right. can, we, can we tap into that innate, inherent knowledge of what it means to be a good man and encourage, support, affirm men in that inherent knowledge, which they seem to have just because they're made in God's image. That gives a much, you know, much more positive way to approach these issues. So, so in your book, you, you mentioned that the criticisms of men uh, begin earlier than most people think. Is, is that what you would suggest the idea of toxic masculinity comes from? Yeah, um, most people probably think it came out of 1960s, second wave feminism. No, no, it came out much earlier. Um, if you read the literature from the historians, they will tell you it starts with the Industrial Revolution. Um, I, I read several books on the history of masculinity. I mean, I say several. There are whole libraries of books on women's history because of the feminist movement. There are very few on men's history. So I got to read them all. But it was cool because then I was getting history from a masculine perspective. Um, before the Industrial Revolution, men worked alongside their wives and, wives and children all day, right? It was on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the, the cultural expectation on men was much more focused on their caretaking role on their responsibility for the well-being of the family. In fact, back then they used to say, you were not supposed to only be the father of your family, but they, they used the term father of the community. You know, you're supposed to bring that caretaking ethos out into the community. Um, and and here's, here was a surprising fact. 
the literature on child rearing back then was addressed to fathers, not mothers. Like if you go to a bookstore today, they're almost all mothers. Back mm -hmm. then, mm -hmm. it was fathers, right? Because fathers were considered the primary parent. And so how did we lose all that? The Industrial Revolution took work out of the home, and men had to follow their work out of the home. And they were no longer working with their family members, right? People they loved and had a moral bond with. And so instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And already in the 19th century, you see people start to protest that men were losing their caretaking ethos that they had had, that they were becoming individualistic, egocentric, self-centered, greedy and acquisitive, I'm using their language, and even turning their work into an idol. They were becoming more secular in their outlook. They were beginning to turn their job, you know, into their, really into their religion. And they used that word, idol, that men of that time were turning their career into an idol. And so that is when you first start to see negative language applied to the male character. And so what I suggest that if that's when it started, that does suggest the solution too, which is, you know, are there ways in other practical ways today that we can reconnect fathers with their families, even though they still work out of the home? Can we tweak the workplace at all? Um, I have a whole chapter on it. You can't talk about this without some solutions. I do have a whole chapter on just giving anecdotes of men who found ways to especially after the pandemic, it's become easier. But men who found ways to work two days a week from home or, or even leave early. I had, a, I had a graduate student who left work early two days a week so he could coach his son's uh, basketball and soccer teams. And his boss accused him of coasting. Um, but he said it did not ultimately hurt my career. And when my sons grew up, they said, we want to be a father like you, which is a lot better than any workplace accolades. So, so I have a chapter on that. And, and, the, and the pandemic really did help. Uh, the New York Times just recently had an article titled, During the Pandemic, Fathers Got Closer to Their Children and They Don't Want to Lose That. And so it has mm. opened up. It's been a game changer. Where I, I even quote, uh, I quote some CEOs too, because you've got to persuade corporations, right, <laughs> that this is good for them. And I quote the CEO who said prior to the pandemic, you know, we were very uh, hostile to the idea of remote work because we thought people would slough off, right? They wouldn't get their work done. And he said the pandemic completely exploded that fear um, that you give parents time to be better parents. They are actually better workers as well. And so I give I give one anecdote. Sometimes an anecdote will kind of crystallize it. So one of my this is one of my graduate students. The husband um, came home during the pandemic, and because he was home, he was able to be more involved with the family's homeschooling. He decided he he would be the one to make lunch for the family every day. He could take his kids to soccer and choir practice, and he took up so many of the family responsibilities that his wife started a part time business. <laughs> My, my graduate student was, a, uh, was an opera singer, which is kind of a new, unique, but she started a voice studio and the whole family benefited from the additional income. So I interviewed her husband for the book and he said, our life is so much more balanced now. I am never going back to 40 hours in a cubicle. And then the final kicker was, he said to me, the time that I used to spend commuting to work, I now spend praying every morning with my wife. So I thought, okay, stories like that, we need to get those out to, to encourage men to think creatively about you know ways we might be able to tweak the workplace. To have Bobby, let me freedom. let me ask the quick follow up real quickly. So you mentioned about you know some of these tweaks. I could assume that there's going to be the criticism of well now that is a feminization of the workplace that we have to kind of soften it. Because the man is, you know, to be the macho, the, oh, how, how do you respond to that one? Well, feminization of the workplace, that critique is raised when people want to bring childcare to the workplace, you know, and mm. I'm not saying bring childcare to the workplace. I'm saying bring the father home, <laughs> you know, um, so that is a, gotcha. it's a different dynamic. I'm saying, you know, let fathers work more from home. 
And gotcha. uh, and I again, I give lots of anecdotes of, of men who he, they sometimes paid quite a price. You know, they, they were willing to pay the daddy penalty. Of, mm. you know, maybe they, did, they didn't get as many um, raises. They didn't advance quite as quickly. Or they even went full bore and started a home-based business. Um, and I have some some ones you might not expect. Most people think, oh yeah, that you could do that with I, you know with white collar workers. But one of the people I interview was a jewelry maker. That's not something you think of. <laughs> yeah. Um, or and some people say, well, you know, uh, you're talking about again people. What what about blue collar workers? Well, I have a good friend who runs an auto repair shop. Now, generally, he doesn't take his cars home to his living room, <laughs> but he can bring his paperwork home, and he does. What he does is he brings all his paperwork home, and he sits at the dinner table, and his kids are sitting around him doing their homework. So he's interacting with them and answering their questions. And so the way I put it in the book is not every job can be done at home, but aspects of almost every job can be done at home so that you can be doing, you know, recreate more of that, almost that colonial pattern where the father is working alongside his children. So he's able to do economically productive work while raising his kids. Uh, I think that's the goal. You know, those are great examples, Nancy. Uh, I want to ask you um, about a book that you actually wrote the foreword to that ties into this, and that is uh, C.R. Wiley's The Household and the War for the Cosmos. And uh, I, I think that the title of the book... Uh, kind of describes, you know, what you're talking about, the importance of this Christ-like head of the home. And uh, he describes it as so important. It's involved in the war for the cosmos. Talk to us about that. Yeah, well, the first time I ever met Chris Wiley, we found out we had a very common uh, vision of the family, which was the Industrial Revolution did not only take work out of the home, and, you know, and men out of the home. But, well, it took women's work out of the home as well, because a lot of manufacture back then was household manufacture. Women, you know, cooked from scratch. <laughs> they, um, and they made clothes from scratch, you know, from carding the wool to spinning, the, spinning it into thread to weaving it. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, they canned food. They made, they made candles and buttons. I mean, everything, churned butter, what, everything. <laughs> um, and that was taken out of the home as well, which is a good... Um, part of the reason for the feminist movement because women wanted to work too. I mean, the cultural mandate was given to both men and women. Um, it, but once they did that, they said, oh, well, let's take education out too. Let's give that to the experts. Oh, let's take care of the sick and the elderly. Let's take that out and put them in nursing homes. And let's take, well, even entertainment. How many people sit down with their family and, and play a game or read a book together? No, entertainment is we're all on our electronics. You know, we're all being entertained by the outside world. So our both Chris Wiley and I share the ideal that the only way we're going to restore the, the strength of the family is to restore some of the functions of the family. You see, by the 1950s, the sociologists were, were noticing that our, family would get, our families were becoming fragile because they no longer had anything to do together. I mean, they would come and sit in the living room and, and relate over what? Nothing. They have no common activities, no common functions, no common goals. They split to, for the whole day and came home at night for dinner. And the, the, as about the 1950s, sociologists be trying, well, at first they tried to give it a positive spin. They said, oh, well, this is good because now it means that the family can focus on what it's best at, with it, which is emotional relationships. But people don't have emotional relationships in a vacuum, you know. It's usually they're doing something together, something of value, something that they both, you know, hold as a high goal. So I think that, that you know, my goal is, is that we can maybe return to some degree the functions of the family. I think homeschool, that's what homeschooling is all about, right? Homeschooling is probably the biggest one that people have said, let's, you know, it's, it's been taken out of the hands of the family. And it's not been necessarily a good thing, especially now, you know, our public schools and so so secularized, you know, the, the secular worldviews being taught there are so dominant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know how any kid survives. So we're bringing homes. Homeschooling was the first thing I think people brought back. Um, 
when they did that, though, a lot of women started doing home-based businesses. Do you know that, oh, what was the number? Um, about two-thirds of women do some kind of a home-based business already. You know, they either have a part-time job that can be done at home while raising their kids, or they start businesses and so on. So two-thirds of women who are home are already restoring, you know, work to the to the family as well, so that they are enjoying sort of that colonial integration of, you know, you can you can raise your kids while doing economically productive work. Uh, sometimes uh, the the family business becomes so successful that the fathers quit their jobs and join them, which I think is cool. Um, and Chris Wiley, of course, being a, being a pastor, is also really, really big on bringing worship back to the family. Yeah. Come on, guys. Don't say you've done your job when you dropped your kid off at youth group. No, it's your job as a parent. Have family devotions, family prayer. You're the one who's in charge of your kid's spiritual well-being and, and your wife's spiritual well-being. Um, so bringing family worship back might be the most important. You know, that's kind of the heart Part of the family, but that's where I share. I I share a sort of restore the household model. Uh, I share that with, mm. with Chris Wiley in his book. Awesome. Oh, that's great. That's great. So so listen the 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 long term strategy of preventing so they say the toxic behavior in men is that fathers invest deeply in their sons, uh, but if you look at any you know, television show, most movies and things, men are portrayed as just Neanderthals. You know, we <laughs> can barely figure out how to do anything. You know, where did that image, per your, your understanding, where did that image come from that we just, oh, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, I have a whole chapter on fatherhood because it is so important. I, I quote a psychiatrist who said, we're not going to have a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers, because it is fathers primarily who train their kids in knowing what it means to be a man, a healthy, biblically oriented man. Um, and, and uh, you know, 40% of American households are single parent households now. It's the highest in the world. Did you know that? We have the highest wow. rate of single parenthood in the world. So, uh, so part of it is, I think, because of what you just said. You know, our media portrays the fathers, the doofus dad, you know, the bumbling idiot. Um, my son loved the Berenstein Bears and the father was always the, you know, the, the incompetent father. That goes back to the Industrial Revolution too. It's um, mm -hmm. when the fathers were taken out of the home, they no longer had that really close intimate day-to-day -day relationship with their children, which meant they didn't really understand what their kids were going through anymore. They didn't know their thinking, their feelings. They, they were kind of out of touch with the family dynamics. And already in the 19th century, you see books starting to say, you know, fathers have become kind of irrelevant. You know, fathers are becoming, you know, insignificant and even incompetent. You actually see the language of incompetence already in the 19th century. And so once again, if you want to reverse, you know, the, the, the trend towards treating fathers as, you know, incompetent idiots, you have to restore the father-son relationship so that... Fathers are once again respected, honored, and their contribution to the family is seen as uh, unique. And and uh, one of the one of the problems I often see is that people say, "Well, it's up to the mother to sort of train the father." You know, as if he's sort of not not he's not naturally a good father. No, no, no. <laughs> God made men to be fathers, oh, I, and I'm not averse to um, I'm not averse to appealing to self interest. I do have several studies that I cite on um, what men gain, what, how men benefit from becoming fathers. Because, well, we always knew that women, uh, you know, when they give birth, they have oxytocin, the rise of a hormone, oxytocin, the bonding hormone, which gives them a little biochemical mm -hmm. boost, you know, in bonding with their newborn baby. But it turns out that fathers also have oxytocin, a rise in oxytocin, which helps them bond with their baby. It's uh, stimulated by the tactile sense. So they have to be actually holding, touching, cuddling their baby for it to really be stimulated. Um, but neurologists actually talk about, they call it the dad brain. There's a nest of neurons in your brain <laughs> that are not 
activated unless you become a father. And so you actually experience brain growth when you become a father. And, and here's the final, this was the most recent finding. It was by an anthropologist. She wrote a book called The Life of Dad. And they found out that a man's oxytocin is actually rising all through his wife's pregnancy. Apparently, nobody had thought to test a man's blood during his wife's pregnancy. But when they did, oh, wow. we found that God is biochemically priming men to be engaged fathers all through the nine months of pregnancy. So it is totally built into the masculine character to be loving, engaged fathers. And that men do find, you know, I gave several quotes from men who said, you know, the secular script is that men get their identity and fulfillment mostly from their job and that their family is kind of secondary. And men, I, I quoted men saying, that wasn't true. When I got, when I had my kids, I found out actually this is a much greater form of fulfillment. Yes. They said, I feel, totally. I feel cheated. Some of them said, I feel cheated that nobody told me. <laughs> so <laughs> so I'm, I'm very happy to help men realize that they also benefit. So it's not just that scolding, like I mentioned earlier. You know, the scolding men do better. No, get rid of the scolding. Let them know that they are actually going to benefit from becoming active fathers. Uh, Bobby, did you hear that? Nancy just said, I have been getting smarter with my <laughs> young kids. I have got a dad brain now that's even better. <laughs> hey, I was trying to tell you, uh, one of the things that uh, we talked about in an earlier episode, Nancy, is uh, I, I just shared the best thing in my life has been my kids. Like when I just talked about the sheer most enjoyable, when I say that it's with my wife, you know, it's been the happiest, most joyful uh, part of my life has been doing that. So I, I have a question for you. Uh, I'm so uh, encouraged by how you use the intellect that God gave you and just the, uh, um, you know, a strong godly woman pursuing academic uh, integrity and rigor and engaging in some of the discussions of the day. The editor we have at Renew, uh, Daniel McCoy, believes that the dominant philosophy in our day is intersectional feminism, which means that uh, through our media and other places, everybody is being trained to think uh, of uh, intersectionality. In other words, there's always an oppress, oppressor and the oppressed, and especially women. And I wonder, Nancy, uh, I guess this is kind of a hard question to ask. I was thinking about it. I thought, how can I ask this question? But at the end of the day, I, I just, uh, it's so important that we disciple the minds of people. And it is so difficult to get a fair hearing with many young people in their early 20s on these issues. I know you've uh, done a lot of the battles on on uh, X, used to be called Twitter, uh, you know, with the intellectual debates and all that. But uh, do you have any advice? First of all, uh, is, is the assessment of intersectional feminism being such a dominant factor? Is, is, do you agree with that? And just on a briefly intellectual basis, any advice for for those of us who are trying to influence churches in how to help people to think better about these things? I think intersectional feminism is a subset of a larger philosophy. It's postmodernism. It's a form of postmodernism. But postmodernism, um, you know, it, it actually, you know, it goes back to Hegel. Hegel was a German thinker. It's, you know, if you've read Francis Schaeffer, he traces modern postmodernism back to Hegel. And when I was young, I wasn't sure he was right, but now he was right. <laughs> um, but, but most people don't even know Hegel. I mean, it, you could get through a college course in philosophy and never study him. But he taught a kind of pantheism where God was a, a, a mind or spirit unfolding, evolving in and through the universe. And his was the first philosophy that suggested that truth itself is evolving. Because if the mind, you know, if, if this divine mind is unfolding over time, then truth itself is evolving over time. And, and that's why Schaefer focused on Hegel so much, because that's the kind of relativism that we face today. 
Um, it's the idea that truth is constantly changing, but also that your tribe has its own truth. There's the intersectionality. Um, for Hegel, every every social group, race, ethnicity, sex, you know, all the, all the normal categories, um, has its own truth because it's the the absolute mind is unfolding, you know, through each individual group, and so they all they have their own truth, and. Uh, so the, it's interesting because what that means is the bigger question is actually kind of pantheism, which actually is a theology that's at the root of it. Um, and it's given rise to the idea that uh, each sort of, like I said, each group, race, class, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, all of our groups now, you know, that they, own, they each have their own truth. So in that sense, he's right. That's the intersectionality part. But I, it's, it's much broader than just feminism. It, it's you know, all of these groups that said they have their own their own truth, um, and uh, and how? But how do you talk to young people about it? I would still probably go back to Love Thy Body. You've you've read Love Thy Body, right? Because Love Thy Body is able to show that issues like gender identity and homosexuality and abortion all rest on a denigration of the body. You know, I mean. It's, it's most obvious with transgenderism, right? Transgender activists say explicitly, my gender identity has nothing to do with my body. You know, mm -hmm. my biology, my biological identity has nothing to do with who I am. It has nothing to do with my authentic self. And so the denigration of the body is very obvious there. But I would say homosexuality too, because even my homosexual friends agree that on the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, males and females are counterparts to one another. And that is how... Mm -hmm sexual, the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. And so to embrace a same-sex identity is to counter that design, is to go against that design. It's to say, well, why should my body have any say in my moral choices? Why should my biology have anything to do with my sexual orientation? And so that is still denigration of the body. It's, it's still kind of saying, well, my feelings are over here, my body's over here, and they can contradict one another. Uh, and some some of the you know uh, intellectuals, the postmodern intellectuals who write on this, like Judith Butler, she's kind of considered the founder of queer theory. She says this very explicitly that my body has nothing to do with my sexual identity. Um, and of course, abortion very obviously because um, secular bioethicists agree that life begins at conception in a biological sense. You will not find any secular bioethicist who denies that life begins at conception. The evidence from science, from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. So what do they do? Mm -hmm. They say, well, there's biology, we're biologically human, and then there's personhood. Personhood it has to do with your mental abilities, and your, your, your intellectual capabilities, your, sense, your, sen your self-awareness, your sense of yourself, even your sense of the future is sometimes thrown in there. Um, so again, it's your feelings, your mind against your body, and you're, you're not a person until we decide that you have enough mental development to qualify as a person. So all of these denigrate the body. Well, that means as Christians, we have the opportunity to frame a very positive message because we can say God created the body and you are meant to be a, a coherent, integrated whole. Your, your mind and feelings are meant to be integrated with who you are biologically, with your body. And it's amazing because in the past, people always thought it was Christians who had a low view of the physical world, right? The spiritual world is all that matters, and we're going to go to heaven anyway, so who cares about this life? But compared to the secular, materialist, postmodern view, Christians have a much higher view of the body today. So it's one of our selling points. It's, it's one of the reasons Christianity is good news, is because we can approach the secular person now and say, you know, we... We're offering you a worldview that gives you value and dignity and significance, you know, inside and out, you know, from the body to the mind to the spirit. And, and it gives us a, a positive way of saying the Christian ethic depends on honoring your body, respecting your body, living in harmony with your body. I, I, I quote one. I'll give you just one quote. One of my favorite quotes is from a woman who was, lived as a lesbian for many years and then converted to Christianity. And she said, um, I came to trust that God had made me female for a reason. 
and I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. Mm. Oh. I thought that captures it, right? <laughs> yes. Now, if oh, we can cool. convey that positive message, that will win the hearts of postmodern young people. Hmm. Wow. Listen, we really, really appreciate um, you and the time that you've given uh, us. You've, you've helped me tremendously. I'm sure you've helped Bobby as well. Yeah. You know, our minds have been open and we know uh, those who are watching uh, this uh, podcast, their minds are going to be um, enlightened as well. Hey, Listen, hey, tell us, how do we get your... Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, I, was, I think I, I jumped in a little bit too quick. You were about to say it. I just want to encourage all of our listeners and everybody watching us to read, especially these last two books that we've been talking about by Nancy. And I think you were going to say something about that. So Yeah, I was going to yeah. ask, how do we, how do we get uh, the toxic war on masculinity? Well, you can get it at Amazon, like everything else, <laughs> um, awesome. unless you prefer places like ChristianBook.com. And uh, I do have, I do have a website. My publisher very generously redesigned my website, so it's colorful and fun. NancyPiercy.com, and Piercy is P-E-A-R-C-E-Y. NancyPiercy.com. So you can come over and browse my other books, and you can leave a message. Uh, so, so come on by and say hello. Awesome. Awesome. Bobby, I'll give you the final words. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for uh, the time that you spent with us. Thank you for, for doing the hard work of uh, pulling this research together and of encouraging us. I mean, the, the, what you're telling us is what Scripture teaches is the best. Like human flourishing is the result of male headship in the home, uh, for for wives and children, Christ-like male headship. Uh, you're telling us that being in tune with the bodies that God made for us, that is for human flourishing. And in, at the end of the day, that God is good and his teachings are good for us. Thank you for helping us to see that. Thank you for doing uh, the hard work and making those things public. And also thank you, Nancy, for entering into the public square and trying to advocate for the goodness of God on these issues. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate your encouragement. God bless you all. And we will look forward to our next session uh, in Scripture in Black and White. Harrington from Scripture in Black and White here. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining us. Hey, can you help us? If you could like, comment, and subscribe to our channel, that would be great. Just subscribe to Renew.org, and then you'll get notices when the next episode from our podcast or other Renew podcasts come out. And it would greatly help us, and we hope and believe it will greatly encourage you. Thank you for listening to Scripture in Black and White. Please comment, like, and subscribe. Coming up next, transgenderism and scripture.